from Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Donald Trump and his ballot eligibility dealt a blow this week when a Cook County judge determined that he fueled an insurrection on January 6, 2021, and that disqualifies him from being a candidate in Illinois. He's appealing. We'll sort it all out. Also, Illinois isn't viewed as a battleground state in the race for president. But Trump is impacting many Republican campaigns happening in the state, and we'll discuss all of that coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And with us, we have Patrick Fingston. He's the author of the Illinois Newsletter. Patrick, it's always good to have you back with us. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be with you. So, Patrick, big news this week. The uh, Donald Trump, we knew this type of ruling was going to be a possibility, a possibility of it happening. And uh, this week, Donald Trump removed from the ballot by an Illinois judge, but also that judge decided to stay that ruling while an appeal plays out. So fill us in. Where are we at right now? All right. So let's step back. The the There was a group of Democratic activists who, who petitioned the State Board of Elections uh, that, that former President Trump should be removed from the ballot in their mind because uh, of the 14th Amendment uh, argument that has been made in Colorado and Maine and in other states. Uh, the State Board of Elections essentially said, it's not our job to deal with constitutional questions. This belongs in the courts. So so the State Board of Elections kicked that that issue out. It went the, the same group filed a lawsuit in Cook County. And uh, just this week, a Cook County judge said, yes, the, the president uh, conducted an insurrection, participated in an insurrection uh, under the, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, he does not qualify for the ballot and he should be removed. Uh, the case in Colorado is still pending under the Supreme Court uh, or with the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court made it pretty clear that it was going to overturn that Colorado ruling. Uh, so this could all be moot in the end anyway, if the Supreme Court uh, makes a decision before March 19th. Uh, it's also likely in in the meantime, that the Illinois Appellate Court or Illinois Supreme Court uh, could take up the appeal on that issue as well. So right now we're waiting for that to happen, see how it all plays out. For those people who've already cast a ballot, I know a lot have, and maybe they already voted for Trump. It's not impacting them at this point and probably will not affect the primary results because we won't have those appeals finished by that point, correct? It, it doesn't uh, impact the primary at all currently. Uh, the judge stayed her ruling until Friday, uh, giving the the petitioners uh, or the defense, the Trump team, a chance to uh, appeal. They did appeal, so the judge put a full stay in. So, so no ballots change. All ballots get counted. Everything with Trump's name on it is still in effect. Uh, I, I think the expectation is that the Supreme Court will will probably rule in the next couple of weeks, we think, maybe, but they kind of run in their own world. So, Charlie, you said before on this show that, again, this pretty much is moot until the U.S. Supreme Court weighs in. Yeah, that that's true. The, the U.S. Supreme Court will have a final say, and whatever they rule, that's going to be effective, not just in Illinois, but that's going to be the law of the land from, you know, coast to coast. But in another way this whole thing is sort of meaningless. And by that, I mean, 
when a, a Republican primary voter goes in, they get to choose somebody for president. But what really counts is in each congressional district, there will be people running for delegate to the Republican National Convention, and they will be running as committed to a particular candidate or as uncommitted. And if the people, let's say I'm a Republican voter, I go in and I vote for Donald Trump, and then I also vote for the, the people in the congressional district who are committed to him, whatever happens to Trump himself doesn't matter. It's the people who are the committed delegates who be elected in our congressional districts from one end of the state to the other. Those are the people who will actually vote to determine who the nominee of the Republican Party is going to be. So in a sense, the top ballot position, who do you like for president, is more a beauty contest than it is anything that has real significance. So, Pat, and that was the real flaw in the argument that the the Democrats made in this challenge, <clears throat> Sean, was that they should have challenged both Trump in the vanity race, the presidential preference election, but also tried to disqualify his electors as well because they're the ones that that actually matter in the primary situation. Though, to be fair, a lot of this is PR. They want they want to damage Trump. They want to make him look bad or worse. Uh, they want to see if they can't find an avenue to remove him from the ballot in November. But it's it's highly unlikely to believe that that votes for Donald Trump or his delegates won't count in Illinois in, in a little over two weeks. Well, Patrick, that's a good point, because you are a former Republican staffer. You've been involved with Republican politics in the past. You understand the party. These moves, well, do I? <laughs> well, I'm getting, I'm getting one if anybody does these days. But you, you understand at least some of the dynamics that are at play here. And one of the things, yes, Democrats may be wanting to damage Trump. In some ways, they seem to be strengthening him at least within the base of the Republican Party. Is that wrong? I don't think that's wrong at all. I, I think that what you're going to see with the ballot stuff, uh, with with some of the machinations that you're seeing from National Democrats that that you're only going to embolden Trump's supporters. Uh, they're already on board. They're they're not leaving. They've been on that train since 2016, and they ain't getting off. Uh, so so I don't know who they're trying to affect because it's not like Donald Trump's message is particularly resonating with, with moderates and independents. So are you trying to fire up your own side? So I don't understand the Democratic strategy here. The 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 issue for Republicans that and, and I know we're we're probably going to talk about this specifically in the suburbs, but at what point do you look at Donald Trump and say he's not helping us? You know, he he's not going to win Illinois. He depending on on how things shake out, he's not in great shape to win in November, though he's in better shape than he should be to win in November. And and. And he if Nikki Haley is the nominee against Joe Biden, she's cruising to election. I don't know that the same could be said for Ron DeSantis, but Haley, we've seen the polling that that she she handily defeats Joe Biden. So for Republican voters today, they care more about their fealty to Donald Trump, that cult of personality, than they do about a Republican winning the presidency. And, and any traditional conservative Republican should have their head explode when they hear that. Yeah, Charlie, we have discussed this in the past that a lot of people within the Republican Party, and I will say there are some Democrats who feel the same way uh, in their party, that 
Sometimes they want to be right about something they feel. They want to be pure about something that they believe in and vote that way, rather than the final result being a victory. It used to be with the Republican Party, we would see maybe 20 percent of people uh, who felt that way would vote against a, a pretty strong Republican incumbent in a primary. Now we're seeing this mentality it seems to be taking over. Well, that strikes me as, as being a, a pretty good explanation of what's been going on. Back in the day when I was a reporter, and this was you know, centuries ago, both political parties were really short on ideology. It was more about what can I get for my constituents and sometimes for myself out of being in office. And it was more about jobs. It was more about pork. It was more about practical, pragmatic things rather than it was philosophical positions. There always were ideologues, but they were a small minority in both parties. And nowadays, it seems to me that the folks who are the true believers certainly have uh, an upper hand in the Republican Party with former President Trump and also in the Democratic Party to a lesser extent, but they're still there. The folks who would rather be pure than actually win elections or actually win on policy positions, the folks who weren't, won't compromise and settle for half a loaf, and as a result, get nothing. Which makes it impossible to govern if you actually get to that point. Right. Because you, you, it's, it's not about, you know, you have to meet in the middle to actually accomplish anything in government. You've got a, a Democratic House and a, a, or a Republican House and a Democratic Senate. Uh, we're almost to a, another funding cliff. <laughs> How do you pass a bill? Somebody has to work with somebody and neither party wants to work with the other guys. And and it's it's just indicative of how broken our political system is. One of the things that strikes me is that looking at Congress and the fact that they've not been able to move and reach an agreement, I guess they reached a quasi agreement to put off the, the budget reckoning for another couple of weeks, like on, on aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, border security. And I think part of the reason, and I'm not the only one, I've read this elsewhere, is that Donald Trump would prefer that these crises continue rather than have anything that might allow Joe Biden to say, hey, I got this done. And that strikes me as being very transactional. And, and, it, and in a sense, that's kind of the way the, the Republican Party was back in my day. They were they were interested in the results. They didn't really care about policy that much. And the Democrats were the same. As I and said. that's what killed the border bill, the border yeah. deal that, that was negotiated mostly by Jim Lankford, a Republican senator. Yeah. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and you're listening to State Week. On our panel today, Charlie Wheeler and Patrick Fingston with the Illinois Newsletter. So, Patrick, you mentioned the suburbs earlier, and that really for years has been a bit of a battleground here in the state of Illinois. I don't know if it's as much of a battleground as it used to be, but that's where Republicans need to make inroads if they're going to at least get out of, say, a super minority in the state legislature. So how are things going there and what role is Donald Trump playing? Well, it's interesting because for so many years, DuPage County, which is the second largest county in the state, was the Republican shield from the Democratic uh, wave in Cook County. Uh, you know, you, you go back to, to Pate Phillip and, and the, you know, the heavily Henry Hyde, you know, the, the strong Republican presence in DuPage County for, for 
decades. Uh, it has since, thanks to you know the the movement of population out of the city of Chicago and into the suburbs, uh, it it became more of a battleground. Bruce Rauner won DuPage County huge in 2014. Darren Bailey lost it huge in 28 or in uh, in 2022. Uh, Donald Trump lost DuPage County uh, gigantically in 2016 and 2020, and he's likely to do it again in in 2024, if and likely when he's the nominee. So so that's left down ballot Republicans saying, how do we overcome this? Because and and I'm a downstater, but I live in the suburbs now. I, the the Trump brand in the suburbs is toxic, uh, especially with women, especially with moderates, especially with independents. So if you're a legislative candidate or or a, a legislator in in the in the Chicago suburbs, someone like Dennis Rebeletti who's looking for a return to the House in an open seat, or Jennifer Santolitro or Amy Grant, who are incumbents in DuPage County that are trying to hold on to their seats as as the uh, tide shifts away from their party. They have to figure out how to message uh, um, uh, something that resonates with voters that keeps them at arm's length to the Republican brand that is so negative for so many females, so many moderates in the in the in that county without alienating their traditional Republican votes. So Republicans in the suburbs are are having a really difficult time figuring out how to tiptoe this issue. Yeah, Charlie, you'd agree with that? Yes, I would. You you mentioned Tate Phillip. And back in the day, the notion that DuPage County would be a, a Democratic county was just unthinkable. That'd be like saying, well, the sun is going to rise in the West tomorrow. And yet, partly because of demographics, partly because of policy positions, a lot because of Donald Trump, yeah, the, the suburbs are pretty much reliably Democrat these days. One area where Donald Trump still brings quite a bit of positive support would be southern Illinois, and certainly that's showing up in a race for Congress. Uh, as the incumbent Mike Boss, a Republican, he's got a primary challenge against the former Republican nominee for governor, Darren Bailey. And uh, about a week or so ago, uh, the both party or both uh, candidates wanted to get Donald Trump's endorsement. Bost was able to do so. Patrick, how did that happen? This was engineered uh, specifically by uh, some of the heavy hitters inside Trump's world in Congress. So, so both Boston Bailey have been angling for Trump's endorsement. Polling made it pretty clear that whoever uh, got Trump's endorsement is likely to win this race. Uh, Darren Bailey has essentially moved to Mar-a-Lago trying to get Trump's attention. Uh, Bost had two of Trump's former staffers, uh, Ronnie Jackson, who was Trump's doctor uh, when he was in the Navy in the White House, and Max Miller, who was a uh, Trump uh, staffer in that that term that he was in office, are both now members of Congress, and they're both supporting Bost. So both Jackson and Miller laid the groundwork with Trump to get an endorsement for Bost done. And last week, uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson and Richard Hudson, who's a, a congressman from North Carolina and chairman of the NRCC, uh, both sat down with Trump at Mar-a-Lago and said, uh, top of the list for you to endorse to protect is Mike Bost. Uh, 
Trump apparently, uh, this has been relayed to me, said, I thought I had done that already uh, and put out a post on his Truth Social uh, website uh, moments later uh, endorsing Bost. I've got to ask you, because you, uh, I think, have some insight on this, but why did Bailey decide to go after Bost and challenge him in a primary? Mike Bost, he's a Southern Illinois guy. So I was a little surprised to see this this decision to challenge him. There was even thought, I believe, at one point that Mary Miller might challenge him if she was drawn into that district with him. So why did this happen and why does Bailey think he can beat Bost? Well, Mary Miller was drawn into Mike Bost's district. Actually, their their longtime home in Coles County was actually drawn into the 12th district, and Miller made the choice in 2022 uh, to challenge Rodney Davis instead of Mike Bost. If if you're asking me to get into the head of of Darren Bailey, I, I think that's a lost cause. Um, <laughs> but but the I, clearly Bailey sees himself as. Uh, one of the Freedom Caucus types uh, that that Mary Miller is a part of, you know, the Jim Jordans of the world that 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 to steal the line from that Batman movie that some men just want to watch the world burn. And and he seemed like that was the place. I, I think a lot of their outrage about Mike Bost in and being this squishy moderate who voted to give people amnesty. I think a lot of this is manufactured. You know, he he criticized Bost because he wore a scarf when they had petition filing. I mean, give me a break. Uh, this was a this has always been a a challenge about Darren Bailey and Darren Bailey's ambitions more than it ever was about Mike Bost. And Charlie, it seems very similar to what we were just talking about. Instead of putting the resources somewhere else where maybe Republicans could gain. You've got this almost zero-sum game going on here, where uh, where boss is being challenged by Bailey. Yeah, and and it doesn't matter which one of them wins. There's no way on earth that that particular district would elect a Democrat. I, I'll use the analogy I've used several times in the past. There's more likelihood that I'll be the starting pitcher for the White Sox on opening day than that a Democrat will win down there. So it's it's an inter-party battle. The fact that Trump endorsed Bost, I think, also reflects Trump's calculation that Bost is going to win, and I don't want to be backing a loser. It's also, I think, worth mentioning that this is not the Jerry Costello district. This is not the Bill Enyart district that Bost won in 2014. When when they remapped, they took a lot of that uh, St. Clair Metro East area out and gave it to Nikki Budzinski, uh, and and then pushed Bost's district uh, significantly farther east and and more rural. So it it turned from what was a, a flip district in 2014 to a heavily Republican district in in 2012 or in 2022. Patrick, you also reported on a race for the Illinois House in Southern Illinois. This has an incumbent, Dave Severin, and he's got a, a primary challenge as well. That's getting pretty nasty. Uh, fill us in on that. So Dave Severin is a, a state representative from Benton, which uh, is in Franklin County. Remind me, um, Sean, that's that's your yes, neck of the that's world. That's correct. Uh, but uh, he's he's seen as a uh, kind of governing wing of the Republican Party member, especially as 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 Republicans have moved farther right uh, in in that uh, in that area. He's being challenged by Angela Evans, who's a member of the Franklin County Board. 
Uh, she has had a hard time catching fire with fundraising, uh, seemingly with a lot of organization. She started a uh, radio ad in, in recent days that uh, has illuminated the immigration issue. Uh, the the ad attacks Severin uh, for being one of 27 House Republicans. Uh, there are 40, so 27 out of 40. Uh, who voted for legislation allowing DACA recipients, who are people who came to the United States when they were children, allowed those DACA recipients to become police officers. The ad is something. Uh, it it begins with kind of a sounder to make it sound like an official news story, uh, and then begins attacking Severin with a message from the non-citizens of Illinois, and then like jumps into stereotypical mariachi music, and and one of the lines was that it had these computer generated voices in different dialects saying thank you to Severn, uh, even including some some pretty uh, racist like Vietnam War era sounds, if you know what I'm talking about. So so it's 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 drawn a lot of ire. Uh, it's been called racist and desperate and uh, race baiting. Uh, it's it's probably it's probably not enough to help her win. It, it hopefully it would hurt, uh, but but it just shows that this is the kind of tenor that the immigration uh, debate has brought to our politics lately. And Charlie, I'm assuming we haven't heard the last of this type of campaign ad as we get closer to the general election as well. Yeah, I suspect we'll see a lot more of that anti-immigrant propaganda as we move forward. And part of it is people are always talking about how all we have all these illegals coming. Patrick, as you were noting before the show, they're not illegal. They are legally here under U.S. statutes that allows people seeking asylum to be admitted to the country legally while their claim for asylum is being processed. Part of the problem is that the immigration courts are so far behind that it may take a couple of years. As I've said on this show before and elsewhere, in my mind, one of the solutions to the problem would be to authorize these asylum seekers to work, give them work permits, because the business community is, is, is crying for help in some areas. And the folks who are here say, we want to work. We want to be able to support our families. And here's a thought. Illinois has been, depending on who you listen to, has been losing population or just barely been gaining population over the recent years. Now, suddenly we have a lot of folks who want to be here. And once they're here, will be counted in the population. So, for example, in a small rural community, if they take in a few of these families, it may help them get additional funding so that there is a positive to this our population could grow we could get skilled workers and fill some of the vacancies in employment problem here is that the two sides are not seeing the differences in illegal immigration and the asylum portion of this asylum is in the asylum process is part of federal law that allows people who who have essentially walked here from El Salvador or Colombia or Venezuela uh, through the jungle without any roads for, for a 60 mile gap between central and Southern uh, America uh, 
to to come to the border and say, I am seeking political asylum. That sets that process in motion. Republicans have every right in the world to be upset about illegal immigration and and lack of border security. But but that's not the issue of people who are being bused here. And and it is expensive and it is consuming resources and the federal government is not doing its job. You know, Republicans don't want to deal with the asylum issue and Democrats don't want to deal with the border issue, the illegal immigration issue. It's time for the politicians to grow up and do their jobs here. Well, we only have about a minute here, Patrick. I thought I'd ask you. Charlie talked about it last week, but the governor put his budget plan for the next fiscal year out. So give us a quick recap of what you see in that budget and what do you think? Uh, what do you think of it so far? It's, it's going to be interesting to see the tax issues and how they shake out here. There's a, a push for a, from a lot of Democrats for more taxes and more spending. Uh, the governor wants to raise taxes on gaming, uh, which which doesn't impact like sports betting, uh, which doesn't really impact the better. It impacts the casino owners. Uh, wants to take away a retail merchant uh, discount uh, for processing um for processing uh, sales taxes. Uh, and then the grocery tax issue, I think, is one that's that's a, a PR win for the governor, but actually hurts uh, municipalities uh, because that, that sales tax on groceries doesn't go to the state. That goes to cities and, and municipalities. And we're talking $350, $400 million of a hole in their budget that they have to figure out now how to how to fill without any help from the state. All right. Well, let's go now to our notes from the field. Charlie, we'll go to you first. Well, this past week, U.S. District Judge Harry Leinenweber agreed to postpone sentencing the four people who were convicted last year for the the so-called ComEd for a decade-long conspiracy, which the feds say amounted to bribing former House Speaker Michael Madigan. And Leinenweber says... Well, I'm going to hold off on the sentencing because there is a case before the U.S. Supreme Court now coming out of an Indiana corruption charge that could invalidate the charges against the ComEd 4. The question before the Supreme Court is whether the federal statute criminalizes so-called gratuities where there isn't any quid pro quo agreement, and they are described as payments and recognition of actions an official has already taken or committed to take. Leinenweber noted that in the case, the prosecution told jurors the four sought to reward Madigan for past beneficial conduct to Commonwealth Edison. The prosecutors assured the jury they were pursuing a gratuity theory and that the trial wasn't going to be a straight-up bribery case. So that means that a, a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in favor of the Indiana defendant would have an impact on the ComEd case. So if the basic decision by the U.S. Supreme Court is there actually has to be a quid pro quo, there has to be some agreement up front that if myself, the public official, does X, Y, or Z, you will pay me X, Y, or Z, that without that, then the convictions will not stand. And the Supreme Court is expected to hear the oral arguments in the Indiana case in mid-April and rules by the summer. All right. And Patrick? 
With the presidential primary on the way again in just two and a half weeks, Illinois is likely to continue its track record of presidential primary blowouts. Since at least 1984, Illinois has had only two Republican or Democrat primaries finish within 10 points. Both were in 2016 when Donald Trump beat Ted Cruz 39% to 30% and Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders 51% to 49%, which was decided by just 40,000 votes. With Joe Biden and Donald Trump likely to sail on March 19th, that trend is likely to continue this year as well. All right, but we'll watch for that. And you've been listening to State Week. That's all the time we have for this episode. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Patrick Fingston with the Illinois Newsletter. Look for State Week where you get your podcasts also through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol, by public radio station, NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.